Well, good morning, church. Um, it is wonderful to be uh, back with you all this morning, sharing with you guys. I want to say welcome to those that are joining us in Wills Point. Also, those that are joining us online this morning, we're very glad that you're spending some time with us. Um, we're in Romans chapter 15. We are, we are nearing the completion of our study of uh, Romans. We actually have this week and one more week to go. Um, but this morning, as I... Um, as I prepared this week for this teaching, it was an interesting way that the Lord just kind of, that, that he led me in as far as preparing for this and what, what I would teach and how I would teach it. Um, so in a way you could say, or I could say, I guess, is that you could define this in a way of, of, of saying it's a teaching within a teaching within a story. Now hopefully by the end of this that makes a little bit more sense, but a teaching within a teaching within a story um, and I'm pleased at how the Lord brought this together and just taught me in it. Um, uh, as I look at this from a story perspective in a way. Um, now as confusing as that may be now, I hope that it's not later on. But, um, but to begin with, I'd like to, to start with Proverbs 16.9. I have this on the screen for you. You don't have to turn... There in your Bible, if you're already at Romans 15, but Proverbs 16:9 says, "The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps." So this is going to be the frame with which you and I um, work through this text this morning. Is that the Lord or the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps? So for many of us. I think all of us in, at some point in time, we may struggle in this area. And I say we can struggle in this area because all of us make plans. Every single one of us plan for this, we plan for that. We, when we're in high school at one point in time, we plan for college, we make plans for a career. I recall when I was facing the end of my uh, high school days, um, I made plans, but they were very loosely created plans. Uh, didn't have much of an outlook, but I did make plans for the next few steps. Many people that I know, they made plans for the next 30 years. Some of those people I've actually heard, they followed after those steps and they accomplished that thing that they planned to do. But the idea is that you and I always make plans for things, but we don't always, though, look to the Lord to establish our steps in them. And oftentimes, we don't even include the Lord in the making of those plans. The planning phase of making plans can be fully our own based on our desires and what we want to do. And sometimes when we, we approach life in such a way and then we get down the road and those plans fall apart, we can find ourselves wondering what in the world just happened and how did I get here? A big part of my story lands right there is I made plans as loosely as they may have been, but I didn't seek the Lord in those plans and I didn't look to him to establish my steps. And in many ways, I found confusion and chaos and dead end after dead end. But nonetheless, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Okay, now to Romans chapter 15, verse 22 Paul begins, and this, this verse kind of picks up right where he left off um, last week. He says, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. So what is this reason? Um, the reason is Paul's mission, 
His plan, his understanding of, of what he is meant to do is to preach the gospel where it has never been heard. Verse 20 and 21 from last week. He understand he was, he was told early on that he had a ministry. He was going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul was the Jew of Jew, the Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul had a desire to take the gospel to his people. But God had a different plan for him. God said, no, you're going to take my gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul understood that. He fully embraced that. He, he made it his life's mission to put his feet to the ground and his hand to the plow and to do the work of ministry for the Gentile. But he says now here to the Romans, he says, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. It's because he was busy doing work in other places where the gospel had never been heard. And it's a reminder in many ways of Romans chapter 1, verse 13, where Paul tells them very early on in his letter, he said, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented for the reason I just said. But Paul, he intended to go to see the Romans. He desired to be with them, to share with them, to get to know them. And he tells them as such here, but then he tells them the reason why he's often been hindered. But we begin to get a glimpse of what Paul's plan is. Verse 23, he says, But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So now we see a bigger glimpse of Paul's plan. The heart of man plans his way. Paul's heart was to go to Spain. He makes that very clear here. He plans to go to Spain. He wants to see Rome. He's saying, hey, when I go to Spain, I'm going to go to Spain, but I'm going to come through Rome, and then I'm going to go there. I'm going to spend time with you, and then I'm going to go there. That's his plan. But then he says this in verse 25. He says, now at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So Paul has a plan, but recognizes he's got to go somewhere else first before he can fully exact out that plan. I don't believe in this context that it's Paul's plan to go back to Jerusalem. A quick geography lesson um, is say uh, from your point of view, you know, east is over here, west is over here. So Mediterranean Sea, you have Jerusalem to the east on the eastern side of it. You have Macedonia and Achaia, which Achaia is Greece, and it's kind of near the middle of it. Just to the west of that, you have Italy. Rome is in Italy. And then on the western side of the Mediterranean, you have Spain. So Paul wants to get over here. When he's writing this letter, he's in the middle here in Corinth, in Greece. He's telling the Romans, I want to come see you here and then go here. But what he understands here is he tells them, at present, however, I've got to go back here. I have a gift. There's something that's been given to me. It's a gift that came from the church in Macedonia and Achaia. And he's telling the Romans, I've got to take this back to Jerusalem. But you see the servant-heartedness of Paul in this. He has a plan, but he's willing to forego that plan at the present moment to take and serve the church 1,500 miles in the opposite direction. But now a separate point I want to head off into if I can. 
It says that the church in, in Macedonia and Achaia, they were pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So Paul doesn't say exactly what this is, but apparently that there's something that's happened in Jerusalem. The church there has, has come to a point where they have a great need. Um, and it's not clear exactly what that is, but nonetheless, two things to note. is for the church in Greece and in Macedonia, they were pleased to give to that need. But also, they owed it to them. Look at verse 27. It says, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owed it to them. And then Paul explains for us why they owed it to him. He says this in 27. He says, For if the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Now he introduces something here for us. And this becomes the teaching within a teaching. This is something that Paul gets to here. He's not specific about it to the context of what he's writing, but I think it bears some expounding for us this morning. He says it pleased them to give this aid to Jerusalem. And the reason for them owing it to them is this, is that they've come to share in the spiritual blessings, but they ought also to service them in their material blessings. So where did the gospel come from at this point in time in history? The gospel came from Jerusalem, way back here, right? So, so Christ came to his people, he was rejected by his people, crucified, you know, died, was buried. Three days later, rose from the grave, was resurrected, came back to life. He gave the disciples their mission, and he sent the apostles out. And from Jerusalem, Jesus told them, you are my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. So the gospel came from Jerusalem. So the spiritual blessings that the Gentiles experience now came from Jerusalem. And Paul makes this connection. Because you share in that, you have obligation then to materially support the place that supported you spiritually. And he made this very clear to the Romans in chapter 9. As we studied before, verse 4 and 5, he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. That's who Israel was. Verse, or Romans 11, verse 17 and 18, he says, And you, speaking to the Gentile, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So he draws this conclusion here and he makes this point that there's obligation to give service and financial contribution Back to the church at Jerusalem who is in need because of the spiritual blessing in which they benefit from that came from them. So now it's a giving back to them for that. And it introduces this whole idea that we're going to impact a little bit further. But note here that there is no mention of a tithe. He says you owe it to them, but he doesn't say you owe them a tithe. The word tithe literally means a tenth. And as I unpack this, in no way am I saying that we should not pay tithes here. A tithe is a really good starting point for how we give. But a tithe literally means a tenth. And it's commanded in the law that tithes were to be given. Deuteronomy 14 verse 22 says, You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. 
So in the law, anything that you receive from the field, you are to give a tenth of that. And who are they to give that tenth to? They're to give it to the Levites. The Levites were the priestly tribe. They were the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel. And they received these tithes as their inheritance. They didn't receive a land allotment, but they received the Lord was their inheritance and they received tithes as their inheritance. But they were commanded also to make a tithe of a tithe. So as the people gave a tithe to the Lord, a tenth to the Lord, they gave it to the Levites. The Levites, because no one was excused from giving a tithe, then they tithed on that tithe to the Lord. A tenth of a tenth. And this is commanded in the law. But you and I today, we're no longer under the law. We're free from the law. So look at what Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And the context here is, is giving of a gift. In uh, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8 through 10, Paul says this. He says, I say this not as a command. So the law commanded a tithe, but Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So the obligation, what is owed there, it, it comes from a place of love. The way you and I prove that our love is genuine without hypocrisy is the way that we give. But if it's commanded, if, if the law commands a tithe, we can give a tithe simply because the law commands it. But when it's not a command, the obligation we have is to share in that with others, but we give it and it proves the love that we have. Right? The focus comes not on the external act. The focus for you and I and the focus according to the Lord and what his desire is, is the position of our hearts. And his example of this is, is in verse 9. Of 2 Corinthians 8, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment, this benefits you. So Paul points to the greatest example that we will have in all matters, and even on the matter of giving a gift financially in some way, is the Lord. It's that though he was rich in heaven... Yet he became poor. He left heaven. He did not account equality with God as something to be grasped. But he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. Servants were poor. Masters were rich. Servants were poor. Jesus came as a servant. He became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And this benefits you and I. But the problem that we have on this particular teaching and context when it comes to money is our definition of rich or our view of rich is vastly different from God's view of rich. Jesus became poor so that you and I, in our poverty, would become rich. And this benefits you. Max Anders notes, though, he says, The cynic would see this as a form of, manip form of manipulation. And indeed, many modern fundraisers have used a spin on Paul's words to pressure people to give. He says, but in reality, Paul's words are the truth. There's no manipulating at all. Christ became poor. We became rich. Our love will best be revealed when we follow his example by taking of what we have and giving it, becoming poor to those who are poor, making them rich. This is simply the reality of the kingdom of God. Paul continues in verse 12 through 14 of 2 Corinthians 8. He says, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Makes an important note here. For he says, For I do not mean that others should be eased 
and you burdened. But that is a matter of fairness. Verse 14, he says, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. So it's not a matter of equity or equality that he's getting at. It is a matter of fairness. But in God's kingdom, the way it exists and the way it is structured is for you and I, if we have an abundance and we are aware of a need, we need to take of that abundance and serve that need. But likewise, whenever that need goes away and there is an abundance here and we find ourselves in a place of poverty or in a place of need, it is provided for. It is a reciprocal or a mutual upbuilding that we have and a mutual support of one another in God's kingdom. It's not everybody has the same thing all the time, but those that do have for a time should support and give to those that don't have. And then over time, as circumstances happen within this world, which they always do, if that flips, then this person understanding grace and what they've been given then is very easy to give, but it's all a display of the way we love one another. But again, the cynic may say, so you give to get. Nope. You give because there's a need and you can help meet it. Simply enough, the world gives to get, but when it comes to the church, it all comes from a place and a position of our heart. And again, we go to Christ's example, our need for righteousness and Christ's providing for that need. We had an utter inability to make ourselves righteous and every one of us was vastly unholy and unequivocally unrighteous. And Christ gave us his righteousness at the expense of his life. So the idea is that one day we may have a need ourselves and we will be someone, there will be someone near that we can provide for and give them a gift with no strings attached. In chapter nine, he says this, I'm not gonna belay this point just yet. In chapter nine, he says in verse six and, and following, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter nine, uh, he says the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So if we're giving, if we're coming in and, and we have this idea of a tithe and we're just struggling this, this month and I really don't want to give it this month, well, keep it. Don't give it. Don't give reluctantly. Don't give under compulsion, but you should give cheerfully as you've decided in your heart. And God says in verse 8, and God, um, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So this is what God does. God is the one that provides it for you and I. And isn't it amazing when it comes, when it comes, to, when it comes for, to God's pursuit of our heart in many ways, one of the main ways he pursues our hearts is through our wallet. Because we plan our own way and a lot of our ways are planned according to what we can afford. Or we plan our way and, and we plan our lives in such a way to, to attain wealth. And then we store that wealth for ourselves and then we provide for ourselves. We become our security. And that takes the focus off the one that makes us secure. But in all things here, he says, God is able to make all grace abound to you. He has all sufficiency in all things and at all times to make us abound. 
but we put the wrong frame of mind on it. Verse nine, he says, as it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So we are the poor. Every one of us, we're spiritually bankrupt. And physically, we came into this world with absolutely nothing. In the end, when we leave this world, we will leave with absolutely nothing. But Philippians 4, 19 Paul says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So church, for you and I, God has got you. And oftentimes we don't give simply out of fear of what we will not be able to provide for later. But God has got you and I in all matters. Now we can be improper stewards or bad stewards of the resources that the Lord has given us. And we can find ourselves from month to month a little bit strapped. Even today, Month over month, we have inflation that is hitting record inflation. Month over month, money doesn't go as far as it used to. That's a reality that we're currently living in. But if we're starting to act in all matters out of fear of what we can't or what we will not be able to provide for ourselves, or men, what you will be able to provide for your family, our focus comes off the Lord and our focus becomes on us and our focus falls on all the problems that are in front of us instead of the one that tells us he will supply every need of yours according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. But the things that we need, church, most often do not line up with what we want. And that is a challenging thought even for my heart. I can struggle with materialism. I have expensive taste. I like gadgets, but if I'm not careful, I can just get and get and get instead of trusting and trusting and trusting. And sadly, when it comes to the church, I mean, we either forget this or we've never been taught it or we've been taught it to the exclusion of how it pertains to money. But God has got you and I. And it's God who provides to wrap up there in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10, it is he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for, the f- bread for food. He will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. He provides for your sowing so that you would harvest righteousness. He doesn't provide for you to put in an investment firm or an investment bank or invest here or there so that you can amass more wealth. No, he provides for sowing that what we have would be used for his good and for righteousness sake. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. That's why you and I have what we have. We are given, we are blessed to be a blessing which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of his service is not only supplying the needs of the saints but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So the things that we have, we give away so that other places and other people give thanks to God for us and we probably never see that. Last week, Marco was here and he was leading worship for us. Edgewood didn't get to see this, but, but Marco was here. He comes from MITC down in Cordoba, Mexico. They're one of our strategic partners. Every month, we give them a financial contribution and a financial gift to support the work that the Lord is doing through them in southern Mexico. And he, is here, he was here last week to give thanks to God and thanks to us for our inexpressible gift. That's verse 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The inexpressible gift, church, is not what Paul was taking 
from Macedonia and Achaia to Jerusalem. It wasn't the physical thing that he was taking, the physical thing that does provide for the physical need, but the inexpressible gift was the church 1,500 miles away in the first century, no planes, trains, or automobiles. There were ships and there were sandals. And one man knew his mission, that he had a mission to the Gentiles and he had a gift from the Gentiles that was to be given to the saints in Jerusalem. That is the inexpressible gift that they were willing to give. They loved that church. They loved what the Lord was doing. So they gave. What Paul is talking about is interesting here. What Paul is talking about, the gift he's in context describing and talking about to the the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it is the same gift, the same aid that he's writing to the Romans about. He's telling the Romans, I have this gift from the church here in Greece. I've got to take it to Jerusalem. He writes from Ephesus to the church in Greece, or Corinth. He tells them, hey, you've got this gift. I'm going to come get it. He's telling the Romans, I've come and got it. And he's telling them, I've got to go now. Take it. But my plan is to come to you and is to go to Spain. But the point for this teaching within the teaching is when you and I come and we give out of the overflow of our heart and the overflow of what the Lord has done and what we've received from him, it is an inexpressible gift no matter how big or how small. Church, I don't, I don't, I don't care. As, as a leader here, I don't care what you put in that offering box. But I care that you put something And if it comes from a place of cheerfulness and joy from your heart and a desire to see the ministry continue here and the Lord continue to do work in here, I don't care how big or how small it is. It is an inexpressible gift and I give thanks to the God for you. But for you and I as individual members of the body who share in the spiritual blessings of this church, according to Paul's teaching and his word, there is an obligation to give a material blessing back to that church so that ministry would continue. But it does not continue if we don't support one another and support it, but for God's glory. So there's the teaching within the teaching. Now back to Romans 15, verse 28. So Paul gets back to describing his plan and what what he's doing here. So verse 28, he says, When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. He says, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Then he says this, he asks, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, for, appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. And there's two prayers, three prayers that Paul requests of the Romans here. He asked that they would strive with him on his behalf in prayer. And he says in verse 31, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. First request. Second request, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So what I'm taking to them, that they would accept that. Second thing, and thirdly, 32, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. And he says, and may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So there in Paul's heart is his plan. But now, as quickly as we can, now how the Lord establishes his steps. And this becomes the story. So while in Ephesus, I said that he wrote to, he writes to the Corinthians. 
right? So Jerusalem's over here, Greece is right here in the middle, um, and then there's the uh, there's a sea there between Greece and Asia Minor where Ephesus is. So Ephesus is here, Greece is right here, Corinth is in Greece. Paul is in Ephesus, he writes to the Corinthian church. They have that gift, he says, I'm coming to get it. In Acts, Luke gives us a wonderful account of the events from this point forward. As Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem, then I'm going to come back to Rome, and so on. Luke gives us the events as they take place. And this is our story. Acts 20, he goes to Greece, or Achaia, um, through Macedonia, and then from there he writes the Romans. In Acts 20, verse 3b through 3, Eight or 38, you find that he's in the company of representatives from the churches. So he, he travels north from Ephesus, and then he goes into Macedonia, and then he's down to Achaia in Greece and in Corinth, and he's talking with all of these people, and now he's in the company of these representatives of all these churches, and he leaves Greece. So he told the Romans, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave, and he goes. He makes several stops along the way, the last of which is an emotional meeting at Miletus, when he gets to Miletus, that's just south of Ephesus, he sends word to the uh, Ephesian elders and asks them to meet him there. And he, um, he meets with them, he talks with them, um, he shares with them one last time in this meeting. He says that you will not see my face again. A very sad occasion for them. But I want to note one thing in Acts 20, verse 22 through 23. I have this for you. This is numerous prophetic references that Paul makes about his future. He says in 22 of Acts 20, he says, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, talking to the Ephesian elders, constrained by the Spirit. He says, Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So he's, he's constrained by the Spirit. He's, he's, he's prompted by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, and he's telling him them that the Holy Spirit testifies to him that imprisonment and affliction await him, and they've awaited him everywhere that he goes. But note who told him that. Paul has made this plan, but who begins to establish his steps? Acts 21, verse 1 through 16. The group left Miletus. It's Paul and these representatives of the churches, and they go to Tyre. They end up in Tyre, which is um, over there. It's north of uh, Jerusalem. Caesarea is north of Jerusalem. And then Tyre is up there on the eastern bank of the Mediterranean Sea. So they end up in Tyre. They remain there for about a week with the believers. And then they, in spirit, it says, they were in spirit. They were urged. They urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So Paul ends up there. Finally, entire north of Jerusalem, the believers there in the Spirit were prompted to tell Paul, hey, don't go to Jerusalem. So it's not that the Spirit is telling Paul not to go, but in the Spirit they're saying this and it's affirming for Paul, something is awaiting for me in Jerusalem. Some, something's bad. Afflictions are coming. Imprisons, imprisonment's been everywhere and they're, they're saying something is coming and something is waiting for him. And then they leave Tyre and they go down to Caesarea. And then the prophet Agabus, uh, he shows up at, um, outside of Caesarea. And it says this in um, Acts 21. He said that he took Paul's belt, this is Agabus, and bound his own feet in his hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. Note again who's speaking to him through the prophet. Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. That's Acts 21.11. Now Acts 21, 
17 through 26, they arrive in Jerusalem finally. So he told them way back when, months have gone by since he left Rome. He's finally arrived in Jerusalem. And here he meets with James and the leaders of the Jerusalem church. And their report in verse 17, it says that their report of God's work among the Gentiles was received gladly. So when Paul finally gets to Jerusalem, he goes to the Jerusalem church. He sees James, the leader of the church there. They received him gladly. And this is an answer to Paul's second prayer request to the Romans. Remember he asked them? He said, would you pray for thee that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints? And when he arrived, they received him gladly. So God has answered his prayer that he asked for. Acts 21, verse 27 through 22, 29. This is a week later. Some Jews from Asia, they stirred up the crowds in Jerusalem against Paul. So Paul remained there for a bit. And he stirred them up against them. And then Roman soldiers then intervened on Paul's behalf and prevented him from being murdered. He was being beaten. He was, he was in the temple. He was worshiping. He was drugged out of the temple. And then he was being beaten. Roman soldiers saw this and they intervened and they stopped them from beating him to death. And this would be an answer to his first prayer request to the Romans. You remember what that one was? The first one was that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. So the Roman soldiers, stopping him from being beaten to death, answer, God's, answer his prayer. And this is actually the first time that will happen. And then Paul spoke to the Jewish crowd. He delivered his testimony of his conversion to them, which they rejected. He was then taken into custody by the Roman guards. In order to protect him, once again, the Roman guards take him into custody. And then you go to Acts 22. The next day, Paul was brought by the Roman commander before the Jewish Sanhedrin. So now he goes on trial for examination. The Sanhedrin is the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders of the day. And again, his testimony was rejected by them. And they caused such an uproar that he was then again taken into custody for his own protection. Again, answering his first prayer request to the Romans. And this is the second time. And now he's in jail, again, for his own protection. Acts 23, 11, Luke tells us, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So remember Paul's plan? Paul planned in his heart to take the gospel to those that have never heard it. He wanted to go to Spain. He told the Romans, hey, I'm coming to you on my way to Spain. But first, I got to go to Jerusalem. And he asked them, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I know something awaits for me there. Would you pray for me? That the unbelievers, that I'm, I'm, that I'm, that I'm saved from the unbelievers that are there, would you pray for me in that? Would you also pray that the, that the saints there, that the Jerusalem church, they accept me when I come and they accept this gift? both of which we find in Luke's account in Acts, that they were answered prayers on Paul's behalf. And then Jesus tells him here, you are going to end up in Rome, but you're going to end up in Rome according to the way I establish your steps. You think for a second Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem to be nearly beaten to death, to be arrested, to have to be in prison for his own protection? No, the Lord establishes his steps. Acts 23 Verse 12, all the way to Acts 26, Paul was transferred to Caesarea, again, for his own safety. He was presented, 
He was going to be examined by the Roman governor Felix. He remained in prison there for two years. Two years he's in prison in Caesarea. He appeals to the new governor Festus. He's on trial before Caesar. He appeals to go on trial before Caesar in Rome rather than on trial before the Jews. Festus ordered him to be taken to Rome. Before leaving, he gave his testimony to King Agrippa. In Acts 9.15, the Lord spoke, told Ananias, you go tell Saul at the time before he was converted to Paul. He says, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul had plans, but the Lord established his steps and that he did take the gospel to the Gentiles. He's now taking it back to his people and now he's before King Agrippa and he's sharing the gospel according to the Lord establishing his steps. Acts 27, Paul is under guard. He sets fail for Rome after shipwreck and wintering on the island of Malta. They arrive in Rome in AD 59. Paul is placed under house arrest. He finally met with the members of the church in Rome. Acts 28, 15, and the brothers there when they heard about us, they came as far as Forum and Appius and three, and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. After what's probably been five or more years, he finally makes it to Rome. His plan was to, I gotta slide over here to Jerusalem. I'm gonna come back to you, then I'm gonna go there. Five years later, he finally ends up in Rome and his third prayer request is answered, is that he saw them, he thanked God, and he took courage. Now, one, you could ask, did he come with joy when he arrived? When Paul is in Rome and he's under house arrest, he writes the letter to the Philippians. In his letter to the Philippians, he uses the word joy or rejoicing in some way 16 times. Philippians is known as the, the joy letter or the letter of joy, I would say that Paul returned or ended up in Rome with joy and was refreshed. He was eventually released from prison and it's assumed that he did venture on to Spain, but we don't have any evidence. In AD 68, he's arrested a second time in Rome under the rule of Nero and he's ultimately beheaded. Church, there's a story. Now, you may be wondering if you've tracked all that, that there was a teaching within a teaching within a story. We have the teaching that's within. We have now the story. So where's the teaching? Church, for you and I this morning, the teaching is right back where we began. It is Proverbs 69. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. For you and I, we make plans all the time. We make plans for our hands. We make plans for our work. We make plans for our wallet. We make plans to enlarge our wallets and a myriad of other things. We make plans. But how often are our plans inclusive of the Lord? And how often are you and I looking for him to establish our steps? Paul had a plan, but he was perfectly in line with the Lord, and he trusted the Lord. He knew in the Spirit that the Spirit was leading him to a place that was going to be damaging to him. It was going to be harmful to him, but he understood the purpose for which he was given, and he knew to walk in that. He knew what his desires was, but it lined up with the Lord's, but the Lord established his, his steps to get to that place. But for you and I, often, it's not going to look the way you and I think it should look but the Lord determines all these things for you and I. If we are in him, he has got us in all matters. And he has something for us out here. And he will carry us to that thing. 
But how much we're looking to him to establish our steps determines the road that we end up on to get to that place. That's the story of my life. In high school, at camp one year, I felt the Lord prompting me to ministry. I didn't act on it. When I graduated high school, I zigged instead of zagged. I did everything except ministry. Not purposefully, because I didn't like the Lord. I just walked away. I just got caught up in the world. But nonetheless, I'm in ministry. Amen? And that gives me encouragement in the Lord's faithfulness and His word and His purpose. But I know now that when I plan my way, I should include him in that way and look to him to establish my steps so I don't spend over a decade wandering in a wilderness of my own depravity, but in the glory of his goodness. That if I do end up in a valley, it's a valley of his leading, not of my choosing. Amen? But we should be careful in our planning our own way. James warns us, and we'll end here. James 4, 13 through 16, he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. As it is, your boasting is in arrogance. All such boasting is evil. After Agabus spoke, the prophet did, in Acts 21 to Paul, spoke of what is coming when he ends up in Jerusalem. Paul's response in verse 14 was simply, let the will of the Lord be done. And he went. And I pray that for you and I. I don't pray that we're called to a place where there's going to be imprisonment and affliction. But if the Lord so calls, I pray that my heart would respond Whatever the Lord wills, let it be done. As Isaiah did in Isaiah 6, here I am, Lord, send me. That's the motto for MITC. That we serve alongside with. But wherever you're at, serve where you're at, wherever that may be, and trust the Lord for whatever may come. But the heart of man plans his way. But it's the Lord that establishes his steps. And I pray that we walk in those steps that he establishes. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for this morning. In your word, Lord, I thank you for the teaching of it. And I pray that you help us, Lord. You help us to, to align ourselves with you. To look to you to, to form our way, Lord. That we would include you in our planning. And beyond that, Lord, that we would look to you to establish our steps, Lord. Lord, your, your word tells us, Psalm 119, Lord 105, that, that your word is a lamp into our feet, a light into our path. So if we make plans, if our heart plans our way, and you, Lord, are the one that would establish our steps, the way we see those steps, according to your word, is your word. Lord, you didn't leave us to figure anything out on our own. And I'm so thankful for that. And I pray that we realize that. I pray for your church that we would diligently seek after your word and your truth and look to it to illuminate the path as you establish our steps to the purpose for which you've called us, Lord. And I pray that we would walk in it for your glory and for our good. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen.